Welcome to PQ Talk on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamat. And I'm Rahul Demania, and we are coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Welcome to our episode of a 19-month-old female with bloody stool, petechiae, and no urine output. Here's the case presented by Dr. Damania. A 19-month-old, previously healthy female was brought to the pediatric emergency department for blood in her stool. The patient was at daycare the previous day, where she developed a low-grade fever, congestion, and URI symptoms, along with non-bloody, non-bilious vomiting and diarrhea. The patient had a rapid COVID test, which was negative, and was sent home with instructions for oral hydration. That evening, patient began having vomiting, and diarrhea, which worsened. She was unable to retain anything by mouth, and her parents also noted blood in her stool. Due to this, she was rushed to the emergency department. In the emergency department, she was hypertensive for age, with a blood pressure of 124 over 103. She was afebrile and was ill-appearing. Specks of blood were noted in her diaper, and on her physical exam, she was noted to be pale, with petechiae on neck and chest. Her abdomen was soft, non-distended, with some hyperactive bowel sounds and no hepatosplenomegaly. The rest of her physical exam was normal. In the emergency department, initial labs were significant for a leukocytosis with a white blood cell count of 19, anemia with a hemoglobin of 8.8, and thrombocytopenia with platelets of 34. The CMP was significant for an elevated BUN of 74 and a creatinine indicating kidney injury of 3.5. Her potassium was 5.5 and rest of her electrolytes looked good. She was also noted to have a mild transaminitis with the AST of 413 and an ALT of 227. She was also noted to have an LDH greater than 4,000. Her BNP was 142 troponins were negative. She was then given a dose of 50 mg per kg of ceftriaxone and a 20 cc per kilo normal saline bolus. A stool PCR was sent. She was given labetalol for her hypertension, started on maintenance IV fluids, and transferred to the PICU for further management. So Rahul, to summarize key elements from this case, The patient uh, we have is a 19-month-old girl with diarrhea and emesis for two days, no urine output for over 24 hours, bloody stool, petechiae on the neck and chest, anemia and thrombocytopenia, all of which bring up the concern for hemolytic uremic syndrome, or HUS, the topic of discussion for us today. Let's transition into some history and physical exam components of this case. Rahul, what are the key history features in our case today? Well, Pradeep, the child in our case had bloody stool, which alludes to an invasive diarrhea. This could have been contact, say, from her daycare. The patient also has no urine output and an ill-appearing state, which points to a systemic inflammatory condition and potential end-organ dysfunction. Rahul, can you highlight some red flag symptoms or physical exam components in this case? The patient has presence of petechiae, which are physical exam features of thrombocytopenia. Her pallor is a physical exam sign of anemia, 
and hypertension points to her renal dysfunction. So to continue with our case, the patient's labs were consistent with anemia, thrombocytopenia, elevated BUN and creatinine, elevated serum LDH, and the, but the patient on pertinent negatives did not have hyperkalemia or acidosis, at least on the initial presentation. To summarize, Rahul, we have a 19-month-old girl who has anemia, thrombocytopenia, and renal failure. All this brings up concern for HUS. So Rahul, let's start with a short multiple-choice question. All right. A two-year-old boy is admitted to the PICU with acute respiratory failure secondary to pneumococcal pneumonia. On day three of admission, the nurse reports the patient to be pale and having petechiae on his chest. The patient has not had urine output for greater than 12 hours and is starting to appear fluid overloaded. Of the following lab findings, which would be most consistent with these clinical findings in the patient? A. Elevation of serum haptoglobin. B. Low serum LDH. C. Negative direct Coombs test. Or D. Peripheral smear showing schistocytes. Rahul, the correct answer is D, peripheral smear showing cystocytes. Now, patient in this case vignette most likely has streptococcus pneumonia-associated HUS, commonly called as pneumococcal HUS, an uncommon condition which accounts for about 5% of all cases of HUS seen in children. A peripheral smear will show the presence of cystocytes, which consists of fragmented, deformed, irregular red blood cells. The cystocytes represent RBCs uh, that are partially destroyed as they move through the blood vessels partially occluded by the microthrombi. Smear may also show giant platelets, which are due to rapid platelet turnover from peripheral destruction. Because HUS is an intravascular hemolysis, serum haptoglobin should be low. Serum LDH along with indirect bilirubin are typically elevated. Now, the direct Coombs test detects antibodies that coat RBCs and may allude to this pathology. In pneumococcal HUS, where there is antigen-antibody interaction on the red blood cell surface, the direct Coombs test may be positive in 90% of the cases. A direct Coombs test is highly sensitive for pneumococcal HUS, but the degree of specificity is unclear. Just to summarize, a few points which I want to highlight is that classically on board exams, schistocytes look like helmet cells on blood smear. Also, presence of Coombs positivity in the setting of hemolysis, you should also have autoimmune hemolytic anemia on your differential. So Rahul, uh, talking about differential, as you think about our case, what would be your differential? The following may sometimes be difficult to differentiate from HUS, but Let's go through some key differentials that are related to HUS. Here's a list that may be difficult to fully differentiate from HUS, but I would like for listeners to consider these as part of a spectrum. You would want to consider bacterial sepsis. And in this scenario, you would see history and clinical presentation that has hemodynamic compromise, features of distributive shock, fever with elevated white blood cells, and a neutrophil predominance, for example, a left shift or a bandemia. The patient may have multi-organ dysfunction in the setting of bacterial sepsis. And with this differential, 
you would want to consider sources of infection as well as host status. Another differential related to HUS could be disseminated intravascular coagulation. Now, there could be multiple triggers related to this differential. Think about sepsis, drugs, toxins, even snake venom. In HUS, the fibrinogen, PTT, are normal or just slightly elevated, and there usually is not active bleeding. This ends up being a stark contrast to DIC. Acute hemolysis from any other causes should be considered when you have a patient with HUS. You want to be thinking of triggers from drugs or toxins or endogenous diseases like warm or cold autoimmune hemolytic anemia. You may want to consider some rare but clinically significant causes of hemolysis, such as paradoxismal nocturnal hemoglobinuria or a post-viral hemolysis. Finally, you want to be considering causes that mimic systemic inflammation. A classic example of this is going to be hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, or HLH. You may also want to consider acute macrophage activation syndrome, also known as MAS. Liver failure, or in your bone marrow transplant population, in which they can get TMA, may be great differentials to keep with HUS. Finally, I want to highlight an important differential that truly is a spectrum related to HUS, and that is TTP, also known as thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. Now, the classic triad of hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia, and renal failure is associated with HUS, but can be seen, as I mentioned, on the spectrum of TTP, which has fever and neurologic symptoms. So TTP is a pentad of anemia, thrombocytopenia, renal failure, and fever and neurologic symptoms. In the pediatric population, TTP can be seen when children have an acquired or congenital absence of ADAMS-TS13. Now, think of ADAMS-TS13 as a pair of scissors that cuts up von Willebrand's factor, which is an important component of primary hemostasis. When you have a deficient or mutated ADAMS-TS13, which is truly a matrix metalloprotease or MMP, you end up having large von Willebrand multimers, which deposit between endothelial cells and creates a consumptive thrombocytopenia with intravascular hemolysis. And what will you see on peripheral smear? You got it, schistocytes. So with this, Pradeep, do you mind building a framework between typical HUS versus atypical HUS? Rahul, typical HUS is seen in patients with the, what we call as STEC diarrhea or Shiga toxin E. coli diarrhea or invasive pneumococcal disease such as pneumonia. The atypical HUS is a term reserved for complement-mediated HUS in which there is uncontrolled complement activation, typically using the alternative pathway. So Rahul, before we go into the diagnostic and management framework, can you shed some light on the pathogenesis of HUS? Absolutely. The diagnosis of HUS comes under the umbrella term of thrombotic microangiopathy syndromes, or TMA. The clinical features of TMA include microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia, and organ injury. The pathologic features are vascular damage at the small blood vessels that is manifested 
by arteriolar and capillary thrombosis with characteristic abnormalities in the endothelium and the vessel wall. So let's break down the three theories of pathogenesis or subdiagnoses that we will see in HUS. I want to highlight three important subdiagnoses. Number one, shigatoxin associated at E. coli HUS, pneumococcal HUS, and like we mentioned, atypical or what we call complement mediated HUS. Let's start with the first one, which is shigatoxin associated E. coli HUS. Now, this accounts for most of the HUS seen in children. The enterohemorrhagic E. coli expresses adhesion molecules, allowing the shigatoxin to enter the bloodstream. Once in the bloodstream, shigatoxin binds to globotriacylceramide, also known as GB3 or CD77, on the endothelial cells. This is also going to be expressed on the renal mesangial cells, and that's why these children are going to get acute kidney injury. After endocytosis of this toxin, the toxin actually inactivates the ribosomes, leading to cell death. The shiga toxin is pro-inflammatory and pro-thrombotic and induces endothelial von Willebrand factor to deposit in between the endothelial cells, activate primary and secondary hemostasis, and subsequently, you get thrombosis at the endothelial cell level. Now, multiple E. coli species produce the shiga toxin, but E. coli O157H7, also known as EHEC, is the most common in Europe and North America. Now, dysentery or Shigella dysenteriae type 1 is an important cause of shigatoxin HUS in other countries. Shigatoxin-associated E. coli HUS is seen in younger children, typically between the ages of 3 and 5. Severe disease is seen in those with high white counts on initial presentation, female gender, as well as younger age. So now that we've gone through the most common form of HUS, let's talk about the second subtype. Pradeep, take it away. So Rahul, the second subtype is the pneumococcal HUS, and this accounts for only about 5% of all HUS seen in children. Neuraminidase produced by the pneumococci cleaves the N-acetyl neuraminic acid from the cell surfaces of platelets, RBCs, and glomerular cells and exposes the Thomson-Fredenreich or TF crypt antigen. The TF antigen is typically hidden by the neuraminic acid. Once the TF antigen is exposed, preformed IgM antibodies bind to the TF antigen, resulting in a cascade of events leading to hemolytic uremic syndrome. Finally, let's talk about atypical HUS. For the atypical HUS, or what we call complement-mediated HUS, accounts for approximately 10% of cases seen in children. Can you describe the pathophysiology of this disease? Absolutely. In atypical or complement-mediated HUS, the gain or loss of function mutations in complement regulatory protein results in an uncontrolled activation of the alternative pathway of the complement system. Unlike the other two pathways of complement activation, the alternative pathway is constitutely active as a result of spontaneous hydrolysis of C3 to CB. In the absence of normal regulation, C3B deposition on tissues 
may increase markedly, resulting in increased formation of C5B9 terminal complement complex, also called as the membrane attack complex, leading to endothelial injury and TMA. 30% of the patients may not have any mutation in complement genes at presentation. 80% of the patients may present with a fulminant course after an acute URI or viral gastroenteritis. Low C3 with normal C4 indicates alternative pathway activation. Extrarenal manifestations such as seizures, hemiplegia, diplopia, blindness, coma, cardiac and lung involvement can also be seen. Now, Rahul, if you have to work up this patient with HUS, what would be your diagnostic approach? Before we get into this, let's create a mental model. Our mental model is going to be consisting of three elements. One, you want to show evidence of hemolysis. Two, you want to find a source, cause, or trigger. And three, you want to determine the severity of organ involvement. Let's go ahead and go through your initial lab tests. You would want to get a CBC with diff, peripheral smear, DIC panel, and direct Coombs test. You would also want to get a comprehensive metabolic panel, serum LDH, serum haptoglobin, complement levels such as C3 and C4, as well as urinary NGAL, which tells you the proximal convoluted tubule function in the kidney. You may also want to investigate bacterial causes. So grab a blood culture, a stool PCR or a stool culture, as well as respiratory culture from the endotracheal tube. Some imaging or diagnostics that you may want to consider are a chest radiograph, an echocardiography, as well as a renal ultrasound. Because these patients can have the tendency to have oliguria and subsequent fluid overload, daily weights are highly recommended in this patient population. Now, disease severity can be gauged by the degree of acidosis, hyperkalemia, their LDH level, as well as their thrombocytopenia. Recovery of platelet count followed by a decrease in LDH suggests improvement of hemolysis. By contrast, if you have a persistent hyperkalemia or acidosis, this may point to urgent need for dialysis, along with other manifestations such as decreased urine output, fluid overload, and weight gain. Rahul, some of the other labs may be needed on a case-by-case basis, and I would highly recommend talking to the nephrologists and hematologists prior to sending these labs. This include uh, the Adams TS-13, which is uh, needed for the diagnosis of TTP, or the complement 3 glomeropathy, also called as C3G functional panel, which includes complement antibody panel, complement biomarker panel, and complement pathway panel. This will require a great coordination between the various services, like I mentioned before. Pradeep, if our history, physical, and diagnostic investigation led us to HUS as our diagnosis, what would be your general management framework? So to careful attention to airway, breathing, circulation, and good basic ICU care. Supportive therapy is the cornerstone of treatment of HUS patients admitted to the PICU. Now let's organize a management model into key PICU management components. Fluid and electrolyte management, blood pressure control, transfusion thresholds, plasma exchange, and plus minus antimicrobials. 
Now coming to fluid and electrolytes, uh, pause one, two, three. Coming to fluid, electrolytes, and nutrition. Early volume expansion, especially prior to development of acute kidney injury, has been proven to decrease the need for renal replacement therapy, as well as reduce central nervous system-associated complication. Once acute kidney injury develops, the intensivists have to work with the nephrologist to provide dialysis. Typically, at our institution, this is done using CVVH, although peritoneal dialysis may be also used. CVVH will help reduce volume overload, correct electrolytes, acidosis, and allow provision of nutrition. We typically use citrate regional anticoagulation when we use CVVH in these patients. Now, blood pressure control, hypertension is very common in HUS. Early use of titratable IV medications such as nicardipine, especially for severe hypertension, can be followed by transition to oral meds as needed. Blood and platelet transfusion. Transfusion of PRBCs should be considered only in symptomatic children whose hemoglobin is less than 7 grams per deciliter. Platelet transfusion must be restricted to only active bleeding issues or invasive surgical procedures such as placement of a VASCAT. Transfusion of fresh frozen plasma should be avoided unless there is active bleeding. You bring up a great point, Pradeep, especially when we're talking about platelet transfusion, PRBC administration, as well as transfusion of FFP. All of these products may actually fuel your inflammatory cascade. A discussion with blood bank or hematology may actually be required to see if there is a role for what we call dextran-washed RBCs, which actually removes more than 95% of plasma from donor PRBCs. Rahul, is there a role for plasma exchange in patients with HUS? That's a great question. Now, there's really no role for plasma exchange in shigatoxin-associated E. coli HUS, although it has been used in STEC HUS with neurological involvement in adults. This is actually a grade three recommendation from the American Society of Apheresis. There really is no indication for the use of IVIG, steroids, aspirin, heparin, or antifibrinolytic agents. Again, treatment is going to be supportive. Now, when we think about antibiotics, antibiotics are actually contraindicated in HUS. And this is a well-established mechanism, as the use of antibiotics may favor the release of shigatoxin or provide selection pressure if the organism is not fully eliminated. Let's transition and talk about the management of atypical HUS. Pradeep, are there immunomodulating agents we can give, especially if we're thinking about this diagnosis? Rahul, that's a great question. What happens in atypical or the complement-mediated HUS is there is impairment of complement activity regulation leading to uncontrolled complement activation. The use of humanized monoclonal antibody, eculizumab, is recommended. Eculizumab binds with complement protein C5, preventing the cleavage into C5A and C5B, and blocks the activation of the terminal complement pathway C5B to 9. The drug works within an hour of administration, and early use may help recovery of renal function. 
after induction dose is given in week one, a maintenance dose is given at week two, and then every two weeks after that. Patient will require prophylaxis against meningococcal, pneumococcal diseases using a vaccine or antibiotics such as amoxicillin. This was a great episode. And now let's go ahead and summarize the key objective takeaways from today's episode. I have four of them for you. Number one, the triad of hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia, and renal failure indicates hemolytic uremic syndrome unless proven otherwise. Number two, early and cautious fluid resuscitation, especially prior to the development of acute kidney injury, results in improved renal and neurologic outcomes. Number three, supportive care with attention to fluid and electrolyte balance, blood pressure control, and the use of dialysis in the form of CVVH is the cornerstone for treatment of HUS. And finally, eculizumab can be the drug of choice for atypical complement-mediated HUS. This concludes our episode on hemolytic uremic syndrome. We hope you found value in our short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.